and welcome to another episode of the Rebel City Podcast. Notice I'm sitting in my garden, which is <laughs> a novel thing in Scotland, but no, the last few days anyway. Um, how's it going, Jamie? the audience in the background. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. I know. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing having the sunshine. Uh, certainly making bits of this a bit easier. Um, certainly in terms of being able to kind of hide the kids out the, uh, the garden as much as possible. Forcing the kids to go out and play. I've been yeah, forcing yeah, myself into the garden. <laughs> <laughs> I decided the other day. I think they'd happily stay in Fortnite. I, I decided that uh, Thursday was a good day to pick a fight with my hedge. Um, I regretted that pretty much straight away. So I just melted it in the street. <laughs> I got that way where I got halfway through it and wanted yeah. the jacket in, but you just just canny. But I was a bit ready for collapse, and it was it was not a pretty sight. But it's nice and clean and tidy, and I can go and enjoy a wee beer there now, which is not too bad. So, how have you been coping in lockdown, Jamie? What's been going on for you? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's been the usual interesting balance. So I have three kids. Um, my wife's working, so am I. So, yeah, it's an interesting balance trying to kind of get, get everybody happy and looked after. Um, on this token, I think, so I, I work from home all the time. So, in that sense, it's not as big a shock to the system for me. Um, and also, I think, you know, we're in a very lucky position. My wife's a counsellor therapist so she has her own private practice so it's been able to keep going online I'm still working so we're, we're in a very lucky position and in that sense I think as well it's been really interesting because actually a lot of work has got really really busy um so you know basic income also I'm sure we'll talk about but uh but across the whole kind of questioning what we want the world to look like after this I think it's opened up a very exciting space so in some ways it's been been really busy, uh, just really weird because obviously we're doing it all remotely and over Zoom and uh, and connecting with people in that sense. But yeah, it seems like obviously the first and foremost priority has to be keeping people safe and getting through this part of the, the pandemic. But, you know, I think hopefully we can try and build something better out of it on the other side as well. I uh, Definitely. That's something we've been talking about a lot in, in recent weeks and we actually um, sort of touched on the, the change in perceptions around UBI since we last spoke. And for anybody that follows the show, obviously, you know, they'll recognise Jamie as a, as a previous guest. This is your, your third time with us, first to a hat-trick. Um, so nice. that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, but in the times that we've spoke to you, UBI is something that has really sunk in with Paul and I, and we've really, like, even when we're not talking to you, we're still talking about it because it's something that we've just taken to um, as an idea. Yeah. But... As we've spoke to you in the past, it's it's been quite a, a you know a niche um, sort of idea in a lot of senses where it was on the fringes of the political debate. Um, it was something that was to be examined and trialed and blah blah blah. And then I think you know in the six months since we last spoke, roughly speaking, it's now something that is a, a really sort of mainstream idea. You know, almost all across the world, um, it's it's it must. Be quite pleasing for you in that sense. Obviously, not given the, the the wider world circumstances, but that other people are now starting to see the sense and something like you know our former UBI anyway. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, I think it'd be no joke or exaggeration to say that the COVID crisis has probably moved the debate here in Scotland forward by a year and a half. I'd say, you know, as, as you said, we went into this. With growing interest uh, in the idea of 
we're looking forward to the feasibility group publishing their reports, which was due out in June, later in the summer now, uh, on what experiments might look like. You know, there was, there was a good steady pace of, of the year. Uh, I think the COVID has shown up. Things that we've talked about before, and I know you've talked about throughout, you know, your, your run on the podcast, that, that we've been highlighting in many different spaces about the failings in our systems, the inequalities, the insecurity, the impact this has been having on people's lives. It was all there before. Yep. I think what's happened in this case is suddenly more people are experiencing it. And so they've suddenly realised universal credit is awful. You know, what was previously yep. told to us in the media was this system and it was just the strangers making use. Suddenly people are having to access that and they're realising it's really, really bad. It doesn't work. It doesn't do what you need and it doesn't give you enough money. People are realising that actually precarious work is really dangerous. You know, so we've seen at the beginning of this, it's, you know, I've said for me, I'm working at home. That's, that's nice. I'm in a very lucky position with that. Lots of people were having to continue working beyond where the medical advice said they should be because they had no choice in the matter. You know, they would get sacked if they didn't fulfill that. And, well, yeah. you know, I'm sitting at home ordering stuff off Amazon filling Jeff Bezos' pockets for even more money. So I, I think it's really highlighted for people this. And I think you can see it particularly in Scotland. You can see it in the change of language we've seen from senior SNP folk. So I think... Yeah. Look at the language of the first minister, you know, MPs. A lot of the MPs weren't really talking about it before. Uh, suddenly now you've got, you know, Nicola Sturgeon saying, if I had the powers, I would deliver basic income now. I mean, that's a huge shift. Yeah, that's a massive step forward. More to actually, we want to do this. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the Scottish Parliament just now, uh, I think we have a majority of MSPs in favour of basic income as it stands. And I think the polling suggests that's going to get bigger next year. So in that sense, yeah, it's, it's hugely exciting space. Uh, and I think what also adds to it is the ability to connect into other areas. So it's, you know, we've always said it's not a magical policy that solves everything. It's a foundation you build on top of it. So this goes really well with the work that the Wellbeing Economic Alliance are doing around new measures of how the economy should function. Let's put the two together. This looks at services, it looks at, you know, living wage, it looks at rent control, and, you know, as we're looking at some of the impacts there. I think that's where we've suddenly gone, this is a, a critical part of what a different Scotland uh, could, could look like moving forward. Definitely. I think the reverse is also true when you, when you consider the, the sort of Westminster reaction to it, because I think as COVID hit <clears throat> and we had to consider you know, what we were going to do to actually keep people protected financially and make sure that there is a, a salvageable economy on the other side of all this. Like, Westminster kind of went in the other direction where they were pretty categoric in the fact that they weren't going to introduce universal basic income. And I think it's weird that when we've spoken in the past, UBI has been an issue that has often bridged the left and the right because there are people on either mm -hmm. sides that, for yeah. different reasons, are interested in seeing versions of it come into play. But I think as COVID hit, it was almost as if that sort of symbi symbiosis and the idea was shattered in, in the UK and it became very much a left versus right thing. Is that mm -hmm. something that you kind of observed? Do you know, I, so to, I would say it's become a conservatives versus everyone else thing. So I think it's interesting to know. So a lot of the discussion at Westminster has been around the idea of an emergency basic income. So something for the duration of the crisis. And that is obviously different from, from a long-term basic income. It would hopefully be a step towards it, but you know, there are differences to them. What's interesting is 
the, the early day motion that was put into to Westminster was signed by MPs from every political party at Westminster, apart from the Conservatives. Okay. The DUP signed it. Um, you know, so in terms of hitting the right, you can't go much further right without falling off the edge of the world. Um, <laughs> you know, you had support from across... And they actually still believe you can fall off the edge of the world. Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, at least they'd have a basic income cushion in the fall. Um, you know, but you had support from across all the constituent nations. We're seeing a huge amount of work across the north of England just now. So the UBI labs in particular are doing some great stuff there. We've seen in Wales, the first minister in Wales is talking again. He's been a, a supporter for some time, but it's talking again about opportunities. The discussion's kicking off elsewhere. So I think what's happened, sadly, is, is probably sums up a hell of a lot of the, the crisis and its mishandling from Westminster, is that you've got a Conservative UK government who have decided that whatever they decide to do, they are going to stick to it regardless of what evidence or sense tells yeah. them. And they are not going to compromise and work with others. And so I think you've seen them, if I'm being brutally honest, my, my suspicion about a lot of the uh, efforts that were put in Westminster, so something like furlough scheme, is not a bad start to support some people during the immediacy of the crisis. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Oh, we've lost you. Uh, oh, am I still there? Yeah, oh, yeah, back. there we go. So, you know, it, it missed a lot of people, self-employed people being the, the prime example. Yeah. But you, what you saw quite quickly was it was delayed, and even more so with universal credit payments to self-employed people. And I think it was the, the idea was to push things down the line so that on one hand they could say, oh, look, we're doing a lot to support people, but actually hope to be moving out of lockdown as quickly as possible as we're seeing against medical advice so that actually they wouldn't need to pay it terribly much. And I think for me, the striking bit with, with the Conservatives was the language used by the Chancellor around weaning people off the addiction. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to be addicted to furlough. Nobody wants to be in this position. It is an utterly ridiculous comment uh, and frankly insulting to everyone. To, but it shows the attitude they have towards all support. And my, my fear with the furlough scheme now is, you know, as they push to, to finish it as soon as possible, we've delayed making people unemployed. We've not stopped the issue. And that's yeah. where you need that bridging support in, in different ways. Um, yeah, I, I think my, my opinion on the, the response um, was was just to stop people from panicking. I think they just thought, we'll just throw some money at this um, and we'll get like a sort of short-term one. But they it, almost like what you're expecting for good politicians is, is that they go away and they come up with some kind of plan to sort of like either something different or... But no, just like this, well, we're going to do it for, what, eight weeks and then we're going to just finish it and we're going to prop up basic uh, universal credit for eight weeks, but then we're just going to go back to the way it was. I, we were speaking right early on, me and Matt, um, in the episodes about, like, will people accept that? Will, will we, as the middle class, have to use things like universal credit to prop up their income during a crisis? Will they just go back and just accept the way that it was before, and I genuinely was hoping that we wouldn't. But what we're seeing is that people are actually begging to get back to the way it was before. It's like they're, they're <clears> desperate <throat> to get back because, and I think it's probably because of the types of things like the Chancellor's language. It was unlimited funds at the start. Don't worry, 
don't panic. We we will we, we will back this all the way to like four weeks later, guys. We're going to need to win you off this or go and find another job. It's so like I mean, you could see it coming an absolute fucking mile away. It's ridiculous. Absolutely, and I mean, it's partly the sheer shamelessness of it. I mean, we've seen it with the Dominic Cummings fiasco. Is, yeah. Do you know what? We'll go back and we'll rewrite the rules that were in place, and we'll just presume that all of you are so stupid you won't even realise that that was the case. Uh, to protect a special advisor, I mean, when has that happened in the history of the world? You know, um, and yet we're seeing so we've we've seen everything thrown out. Public health in England has been screwed over this. The lockdown is dead in England. There's no way you can you can come back from that. Um, but also coupled with, for me, there's been so much pettiness throughout it. So even the fact, you know, it's been very clear that the First Minister and the First Ministers elsewhere have repeatedly asked Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, can you just remind people when you do a briefing that it's just for England, it's not for the other country. This is yeah. what we have devolution for. And um, the fact that it's deliberately <coughs> been uh, ignored and reiterated across the media and not even just the usual suspects. I mean, The Guardian, you know, supposedly a bastion of progressive journalism, had a thing about where in Scotland to go now that lockdown is being eased. Um, and I mean, it's it's just been pathetic. And honestly, Boris Johnson has done the biggest um, amount of effort for the cause of Scottish independence of anyone in the history of the United Kingdom. I think. Yeah, I definitely think that as well, to be honest with you. I don't know that unless you're looking through the, the staunchest, most sort of, you know, union flag coloured spectacles, like you can look at what's went on down there in the last while as anything other than a total shambles. And I think that deliberate sort of steps that you're talking about, the, the language and the attitude, is reflected in the context of UBI when they were discussing it. And in the early sort of lockdown episodes that we had, I had mentioned that I thought that UBI was a non-goer in Westminster terms because it's basically the silver bullet to austerity. Like, as we spoke in earlier episodes, you said that a universal basic income can give people the opportunity to say no to work that they don't want to do. And I think as we move through the end of the furlough scheme, we're going to start to see that a lot of companies have, by all intents and purposes, already went bust and are waiting to the furlough scheme to end to pay staff off and make as much money for other people as, as possible. I think there's going to be widespread redundancies and, you know, foldings as this, you know, goes Universal basic income would provide a security that would allow people to then not take the poverty wages that come on the other side of that mass redundancy. Um, so again, there's a deliberate almost ignorance towards it, I think, at a UK level, because they know that if they give people options, people won't do the things that they want them to do, like chasing them. Companies are screwed. Aye, they can't get like, fruit pickers, there's the example that they go, we don't want these low-skilled migrants, we'll... we'll put a point system in place to keep them out. And then they go, there's 50,000 fruit picking jobs. And maybe in the UK, one thing, they got 125 people out in the fields and you're just like, you know? It, absolutely. And I think this is the point, is that what we're seeing now is this crisis is showing how utterly broken the system is, you know, and it should be utterly unsustainable. We can't take for granted that just because it's been really obviously shown how broken it is, that therefore it will go without a fight. You know, what we're seeing in America just now is centuries of inbuilt inequality and, you know, racism and, and racial uh, disparities. 
but coupled with economic insecurity and and, um, and inequality. Yeah. What we're seeing in the UK is the same, and I think that's where, I, I think you're spot on, is control, you know, we quite often talk about Johnson's government being pretty incompetent, he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, it's, it seems clear to me that he's a prime minister, he's utterly out of depth and in the wrong yeah. way. I never suspected he would be a good prime minister. I have to say I, I'm surprised by how bad he's been. Um, but actually, sometimes that it plays to that old Boris the buffoon, you know, Bojo the clown thing that lets him get away with things. Yeah. Is actually, there's a lot of calculation there too. Um, it's not because there's a clear plan. It's because there's a desperation to hold on to what's already been there. And so actually, it's that controlled use of panic. It's that... Forget about the health implications. You need to get back out there and working because your job's not going to be there if you don't. Now, actually, it's not going to be about whether we're back out in our jobs just now to save those companies. I think you're quite right. A lot of them are, are currently on life support and are waiting for the machine to be switched off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's going to be, I, I think there's this pressure to push people back to create that desperation because it then sustains people in going, you can't imagine making things different because actually what, what might go wrong? The issue is, we would have been in a better position going into this had we had a basic income. People would have had security to stay at home and observe lockdown easier. We would have been in a better position going into this if we hadn't had, you know, a decade plus of austerity that completely destroyed public services. We'd have been in a better position going into this if we hadn't had a racist immigration policy that was saying to people, actually, you're keeping the NHS alive, but we don't want you here anymore. Um, And I think... It's, it's obvious to see that, I think, for, for a lot of us. But the pressure to retain that is incredibly powerful. And I think, I read an interesting thing this morning that said, if you look at a lot of, of the UK government's language in the early days, it was about reinforcing this idea that we couldn't do lockdown because British people wouldn't want it. The British people want liberty and freedom. You know, and this came out in some of the kind of hardcore right and, and so yep. on. You know, that this we won't accept this. And it was actually it was an excuse to not do lockdown because of the economic impacts. But actually, what oh, yeah. is also slightly concerning is I think uh, in a certain part of British society, there's actually more of a draw towards authoritarianism than is probably completely comfortable. And yeah. going into this kind of transition period afterwards, you know, again, as we're seeing in the US, I think we would be very unwise to sit looking at the US and going, oh, you know, they've got problems over there, at least we're not as bad as them. I think yeah. very similar structural and systemic issues. Yeah. That yeah, we can... were talking about this with, with Paul Sweeney last week, that just because we've got a nice accent and a and a smile and a and a, oh. a, a forefinger and thumb pointing towards the camera when they tell you stuff, it's the same shit. Like Trump's just He's putting it in a way that's actually like a bit gross to people and the way that he's kind of, well, he's uneducated and he, he doesn't really give a shit about what people think of him. So the way that he puts it is really blatant and disgusting. But Boris is no better. Like, we've got no better leadership yeah. here and we have seen the exact same shit happening here bar the writing on the street. So I, I, I'm, the, I'm so far. with you, Jamie, that... So far, I'm with you, Jamie, that the press in the UK are kind of like, we're getting inundated with it, with these situations that's happening in the States, and we're getting inundated with, with the politics that's happening in the States, and even getting guys like Sam Harris and, and Andrew Yang coming out and going, that it's disgusting how it's been politicised and it's became polarised, like this issue, even though it's a pandemic, but we in the UK are facing the exact same shit, it's, it's yep. the same, it's just, it's got like a, it, 
it's got like an institutionalized feel to it, whereas Trump feels kind of like unhinged. Um, but yeah, it's it's the exact same. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think for the US, a lot of it there has grown out of, you know, a long period of time of the glamorization of, of violence and particularly the, you know, these are issues with police forces in America that we've seen for decades, if not longer, yeah. and haven't been dealt with. And it creates uh, both a, a kind of um, presumption that police can get away with it, but also it's politicized. And I think, you know, you see the levels of, of split in the US. So I was talking to some, some US friends recently and they were saying that face masks are an utterly political decision now. If you are seen wearing a face mask in the US, you are saying, I don't support Donald Trump and I'm a Democrat. And if you don't wear one, you're saying, I support President Trump and I'm a, a Republican over yeah. a face mask. And we look at that, we see those levels. But I think it goes back to the point you made earlier about the, the kind of, the, the, the need to support. So the split between, I suppose, pro-conservative, pro-union sides, and frankly, everyone else, is that we should be in a position where it's possi perfectly possible and, you know, and some people have done to go, look, I support the conservative approach. Dominic Cummings was bang out of order and he should be sacked. That's sensible grown up politics. What we're actually seeing is more and more people going down the, the Trumpian approach, which is there can be no criticism of yeah. the leader of the party. And so we will get ourselves tied up in knots, justifying stuff that is utterly unjustifiable. You know, there is no justification for what's been happening in the US. There is no justification for a lot of what's been said around Cummings and other stuff in, in the UK, but we're getting polarized over it. And I think that's where the real danger comes in. And I think you're, you're quite right. With that. In the US, that's been through the polarization politics, the saying, you know, I support the police because I'm I'm of the right and a patriot, and therefore yeah. I just think they do. Here, it's the, the lasting legacy of class, which is that we're seeing, but this guy went to Eton, he must know better than we do. So, you know, kind of keeping your place, plebs, and, and go along with what we're being told. And it, it may not be as outwardly gross and obvious, but actually the, the use of the Trumpian playbook is, is quite terrifying, I think. Yeah, I think the, the tactics <clears throat> being similar is why we have that similar result, I think. Over the course of this weekend, I've seen you know guys like John Oliver on the Stand Show, uh, you know the Hassan Minaj on his um, sort of weekly show, talking about how the challenges faced are the same because we're faced by the same political tactics, the same sort of bluff and bluster that comes along with. Obviously, in recent days in America, that tone has changed as the president starts talking about you know starting shooting when people start voting and stuff like that. Um, but it's the the kind of I think the end conclusion is that, you know, if people are pushed to the margins and, you know, have resources withdrawn, have, you know, jobs disappear overnight, and then they also see, you know, people like them being killed for absolutely no reason whatsoever, I think the end result, in a lot of senses, can only be anger and outrage that we've seen. Um, I mean, some of the pictures for America, and you work in America a fair bit yourself, I don't know if, you know, any of your colleagues or anything like that are affected. I certainly hope not. Um, but, yeah, it's been absolutely staggering to see what the, the end result of this absolutely. deliberate sort of, you know, divide and conquer and the marginalisation and are people that, you know, it's been for corporate benefit. But the end result now is that 
where we're now facing serious civil unrest in America, and, and there's a serious danger of it spreading as far as I'm concerned as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think rioting is, at the end of the day, the, the voice of those who are voiceless. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's very easy to, so in any of the, any situation of civil unrest, of course there are people who then jump in and make use of it, whether through the love of anarchy or through through looting and so on. Now, A, it's hardly surprising when people who don't have much start looting the kind of corporate entities that have A, helped yeah. them, but B, they're told this is the sign of success that's unattainable to them. Uh, but also, actually, I think it's in many ways, I mean, you see it with a lot of the protests in the US already. They're not about looting. They're about protest. They're genuine political protests. And actually, the, the really scary thing is that in a lot of those cases, the escalation has come directly from the police. Um, you know, and I, I have friends yeah. who are police officers. Uh, you know, it's, it's a vital service, but it ha- only when it does well. You know, Scotland, our tradition is policing by consent. And I think that's the critical aspect of it. You know, yeah. as soon as you have policing by authority and force, which is what we're seeing there, it, it escalates these issues. But it is about these underlying fears and angers and disconnects that we'll have experienced for, for centuries, for decades. Yeah. You know? And when you get to a stage where you've got a president of the United States of America retweeting videos saying the only good Democrats are dead Democrat, and you're talking about shooting when the looting starts, when you're talking about releasing vicious dogs, I mean, it's like he's watched a bad episode of The Simpsons, you know, in yeah. one or This is, that, you know, I, I think we can overuse Overuse kind of terms like fascist and and uh, you know dictatorships. You're certainly hurtling towards authoritarianism there. It's incredibly difficult, especially when you have police forces who are heavily armed at the same time. This is the thing. I seen somebody comment on it today, and the build up to this, and they made a great point as we talk about you know how this is now in certain respects moving towards totalitarianism, and that's that the guy had said something along the lines of. Police officers are out on the streets dressed like Avengers, whilst doctors are wearing bin bags to fight a pandemic. And you're like, this is where the power and the money has went into like militarising a police force rather than, you know, actually dealing with one of the main issues that's immediately at hand. You know what I mean? Like, so there needs to be like a, a root and branch change of people's priorities on the other side of this. If we're talking about that way in which we we can do better, like, how the fuck can we do any worse? You know what I mean? The thing is, you see the difference in, in civic responses to that. So, you know, Bill de Blasio, who's a, a Democrat mayor of New York, and uh, his comments on it basically was, oh, I agree with you. Can you just go home now and, and stop? Uh, we need to yeah. And, you know, whereas Link was the mayor of Atlanta, gave a really powerful speech about how she had shared the pain and the horror of watching him die, you know, and, and that's... There were different responses. I saw a, a, a comment, a piece by a police chief um, from near uh, Minneapolis who was talking about how he approaches policing in his community and how he's heartbroken by both the deaths but also by what it does to policing. And, you know, I think it's partly trying to find the good ones who are out there and find support. But as you say, when you make it very clear as a, as a government and as a political entity where you put money, where your priorities are. And we've seen that hugely in the US. I mean, it's, it's taken to extremes there. We don't have the level of, of weaponry that, that's attached to that. And I think we still have, thankfully, overall, a police force in the UK who, who are still willing to at least speak some truth to power. We've seen a bit of that 
excuse me, of the fallout from Cummings and, and some of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I always remember there was a, a great comment from the, the Chief Constable Greater Manchester Police, and he said, look, don't ever put us in charge. He said, don't let police officers be in charge. He said, we are brilliant at what we do. And when you need to talk about security and safety, you bring us in because we are the experts. He said, but we view everything through the lens of the criminal justice system. That's our job. And actually, yeah. when you mix the two, it's not a good place for it to be yeah. in. And I think when you're a when you're a hammer, everything else is a nail. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I, in that sense, I think we are in a slightly different position. But we see elements of it here as well. And it doesn't take much for the same kind of civil unrest to vary. Yeah. Quite, you know, it's not long ago we had miners fighting uh, police yeah. officers. And that exact same conversation with somebody this morning. Well. They were saying it's terrible what's going on. And it's like, if you look at what's happening in France, like, we're not that far away from it. And I think the only difference is, is that we're not in the streets. So if we took to the streets, I think we would see just how easy it would be for us to slip into the same thing. Okay, we might not be staring down the barrel with a gun, but I think when somebody's wielding a truncheon at you, like, you're really, yeah. no. exactly, exactly. And there are multiple police forces all across the UK and in Scotland that have had issues with race as well. It's not something that we're trying to lay it, you know, slow with the feet of America. We've all got oh, no, a level of responsibility for being better on this, to be honest with you. But I think to, to kind of like maybe bring it back a bit to, to the UBI side of things, um, <clears throat> one of the, the thoughts I had on it was that as we talk about, you know, the explosion and the idea um, over the last, say, four months or whatever, it's for me about the fact that people previously who might have found it a, an interesting prospect or living paycheck to paycheck, month to month, and people who were a wee bit more comfortable, as I say, the All Right Jack Brigade, um, didn't think that that was something they needed to concern themselves with, um, alongside many other sort of constitutional and political issues where, you know, they could have stood beside people in the country a bit better. But now, as COVID drags on, we're seeing people who maybe had sort of three, four paychecks worth of security actually starting to look at their shooters now and think in very similar terms to the people who up until now have been living paycheck to paycheck. And I think, for me, that's maybe where a lot of the growth and, yeah. you know, this is a prospect is, isn't it? It's now that people who previously considered themselves reasonably comfortable are now actually starting to feel the pinch and are like, right, so what are our options here? Is that something that you think's on the money or what? Absolutely. Um, and I think... It's, so it's one of the reasons I've always, you know, so a basic income, kind of the, the, the core conditions of it, if you like, are that it's, you know, regular and secure, so you know it's coming directly to individuals. It's unconditional, which for me is absolutely critical and still is the bit that lots of people are, are not happy with, in a sense, because the, the lack of trust and the amount of paternalism is still quite, quite severe. Uh, but that it's universal, and that's quite often a sticking point, because people say, but why should richer people get <laughs> The reality is that the way you would deliver a basic income scheme, higher earners would be paying more back in tax than they would receive anyway. So it's not a net gain. I think it's important to deliver it to people for a number of reasons, partly through just simplicity. If everyone gets it, you're not means testing it and so on. But actually, the, the, the point of economic security you've, um, you've touched on there, I think, is absolutely critical. The spread of insecurity is much higher up the economic food chain than it perhaps used to be. Um, you know, the idea that you could hit a certain salary level and be quite safe and secure doesn't stick anymore. Um, you know, we've, we've done research showing, you know, nearly half the people in, in the UK don't have 
you know, enough to deal with that, say, a £5,000 sudden bill that they'd have to pay for. And that's not just having the money to hand, it's actually even being able to access other forms of payment. Um, you know, actually, you can be quite a high earner, but if your job suddenly vanishes and you've got, you know, the big mortgage and, and everything else, you're quite indebted in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been quite so caught up before. So I think this is starting to show it. I think you're you're absolutely right that there's a huge issue, a huge positive issue around people's this is a something that needs to be looked at and it's that they're experiencing. And I think that will only continue to grow in, in many ways. The insecurity is going to continue for quite some period of time, particularly as we yeah. talk about jobs and, and businesses going. Um, I think there is an element whereby in some ways though would be the anger at some of the failings in the system pushes back against universality because people do get a bit more caught up in that we don't want to give things to those who've had more who seem to have contributed to where we are uh, but i think that economic insecurity argument is critical because i think we're going to see a lot of uh, you know of impacts across parts of society that we maybe didn't expect to see it and that'll be the same with automation uh, and ai they're going to impact on jobs that you know are different parts of the scale. Now, if you have more money, and quite often, therefore, maybe more education or more connections behind you, you're in a better position to move into something else. But I think insecurity is going to be a key driver, uh, and and hopefully a key driver of saying, why are we in that situation? Why do we have such insecure lives? The the point is to maximise profit uh, and consumption. Now, they're not yeah. sustainable from a human level. They're not sustainable from an economic level. They're not sustainable from a, a climate level either. And I think, you know, whatever COVID has offered as challenges is not even a, a kind of taster of the, the climate emergency and the impact that's coming there. We need to address that. And that's going to have to change, you know, a lot of things across society. Yeah, man. I think like a lot of the, the pushback against basic income that I've seen even in recent weeks and months has been a complete and utter basic misunderstanding about how human beings actually work. Because this, um, what I loved about, and uh, I didn't like a lot about what the message, the way that Boris and his, his pals like delivered the, the furlough scheme and stuff. But one, one of the things that I loved was when they said that we're going to go on the side of the science here. I mean, the, the, the sort of question that came up in my head was like, well, why don't we fucking do that anyway? Like, what, why, if, if, if people are running models about economic, and society and how we can live our lives differently why don't we always just err on the side of the science and just try these things but i was i get like excited about that type of language when i was like right maybe we're actually going to speak a wee bit more about what motivates us and, and how we actually should be living versus this like post-industrial revolution 95 monday to friday the bell rings you go for your lunch the bell rings you come back and you, and you do your work like like why and and I seen Loki talk about um Loki seems to attract a, a, a wide spectrum of people. I think it's just because he's been on question time and he's just yeah. a prominent guy um in Scotland. But the people were still coming in and going, This is gonna promote lazy people uh -huh. just not getting up and going to work and you're like, go and read, go and educate yourself on this. Like it doesn't exist. It might be a small percentile of people, but it yeah. comes down to like it, it comes down to how you've been raised. It comes down to whole loads of stuff that means that you lack motivation. It's not just because you're lazy. Like, we're not lazy. We, we, we crave purpose. We crave all these things that our work just doesn't give us. Like, why don't we just listen to that? And and instead, we keep going on about these lazy people that will just drain. And it's, uh, it's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. 
Aye. Does it take into account the fact that you know it, all sorts can be created? Is it the, the the time and the space and the freedom that people would have potentially can lead us down roads that we've not even imagined yet, and that we probably, as the world changes, maybe need to be in front in a lot of respects. Like, I think the biggest criticism I've heard that was probably in line with what Jamie was talking about when it comes to the universality. Um, I think the only term I've or the only figure I've heard banded about in sort of Scottish terms was, I think roughly about £400 was being discussed. And one of the guys in some of the, the Scottish papers came out and went, well, what's the point in that? Because £400 no enough for somebody to live on. And it's also pointless to somebody who is already well off. And you're like, but that's like you say, it's no, right? So I get that you're saying, like, it needs to be means tested so it can't be a universal basic income. But like, it's that assumption that, somebody's going to get handed 400 quid and then they're just going to live off a 400 quid a month. And you're like, that is an absolutely nonsensical idea, especially in, you know, the current climate, you know what I mean? As there's that misunderstanding and that, you know, pushback against the, essentially the universality. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a few things that have been really interesting. So, I mean, the, the level of basic income for Scotland, I mean, most models, the one we put out, the Reform Scotland, Scottish Green Party's purchase, have all been roughly around, so say if we're talking, say, £5,000 a year for, for each adult, less for children, more for pension age. I mean, apart from anything else, when you start to add those up uh, as sums of money, if you look at, particularly if you start looking at a family unit, it can get quite a substantial bit of money quite quickly. Um, and it also has impacts, for example, the, the pension equivalent is it's not based on contribution, it's your automatic right. So instantly things like the, the, the wasp fee struggle you can address um, and yep. respond to. I mean, we've, today about the science, we've looked at economic modelling and uh, the, the recommendation we have made, even at £4,800 per year per adult, which is, you know, relatively low sums of money, that eliminates destitution in Scotland under JRF terms entirely and I think we actually it shows a kind of a degree of patronizing and, and kind of your own lived experience to dismiss any sum of money as not being enough because actually to people who are not sure how much they're going to have in their bank at any point this is still a substantial improvement to see that there's there's money that's going to be there that doesn't get taken off you when you you go into work that doesn't penalize you that gives you a degree of of freedom to make choices, as we said uh, earlier. I think one of the things that's been really interesting about this crisis is that perhaps it's opened up the debate around the level more than we've had previously. So I, I always joke to people that when I'm giving a talk to a group, particularly a new group I don't know, or if I'm, I think they're fairly new to the idea, I never give a level during the talk. It always comes up in Q&A, but I never give a level because it's always the wrong number. It's either too high or too low. Because actually, it's one of those things you need to go and play with and have a think about. But what's been really interesting recently, so, you know, I think this has partly come about from, from Andrew Yang. So, I mean, his campaign, uh, you know, in many ways, I really wish we were a few months further back and he was still uh, in, in the running. Uh, I don't think Joe Biden's convincing anybody um, with his approach so far. Yeah. But, you know, Andrew talked about the $1,000 a month freedom dividends uh, and I quite like the dividend idea because I think it reinforces the fact this is an investment but it's also our shared profit so he was talking recently about um, you know when you look at the big tech companies making so much money none of the data that they're making the money off is coming back to us even though it's our data where's our dividend where's our share 
in in that, that earning. And I think that's an interesting way to, to look at it, obviously quite American in a, in a sense. But actually, you know, he talks a lot about $1,000. And I find a lot more people recently starting to talk about, well, what would £1,000 a month look like? Now, that's not to say that I think that's necessarily where we should start or what would be deliverable, because obviously you're talking about huge increase in terms of the, the cost of tax. But it changes the dynamic of the conversation and it changes the conversation around what we want basic income to do. So is it a basic income that provides survival at the lowest level or is it one that actually we do want to give people the chance to, to choose to live off? How do you combine it with a four-day working week, for example? So actually, you know, working less and having that money underpinning you gives you the space to, to do other things. So I think for me, I think what's really beneficial is it's, it's opening up the conversation. People are kind of getting the idea of what it is. So now they want to start, about, start talking about what would it look like in practice. And I think that ties with the shift that for me, what, there's an article in the National today saying about you know the, the feasibility report on a, an experiment for Scotland is going to be out later in the summer. You know Scotland's still looking at running basic income, large-scale basic income experiments. Being brutally honest, and I think the, the feasibility group have done some really good work. I think it's a really important contribution, particularly around the interaction with Westminster and Scotland. Um, I can't see any chance of us doing you know an experiment with 17,000 people and then another 17,000 control group. DWP won't let it, Westminster won't let it, we're heading towards elections, constitutional debates, you know. And I think actually the conversation recently is shifting to, well, what does basic income look like as a policy? And actually, what does it look like in reality? You know, what does it look like if we, we don't focus on experimenting, but actually say, no, this is a foundation we want to build on? Now, an obvious route is that that's a foundation to an independent Scotland, but it's deliverable under a more devolved UK. So, I mean, it's interesting to see the Lib Dems now getting involved in the discussions. Willie Rennie's asked for a cross-border summit on basic income, uh, which I think is good to see them start to get involved from maybe a different political perspective. Going back to what we were saying earlier, Matt, about it's actually, I think it's its strongest when we, we can involve as many different people as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, beginnings of movement from the Labour Party, certainly uh, in, in other parts of the country. So I think the level is going to be an interesting discussion. And I think if that pushes us to have more suggestions and ideas, I mean, we've always, I've always said in my work that if, if, if I've been part of something that proposes a level, that's as an illustration, that's as a, a conversation starter. That's not saying that's what it should be. Yeah. So let's have that conversation. It will cost us money. Well, good. Let's invest for once in society instead of taking money out of it. Let's look at where we can not spend money elsewhere, let alone the longer term uh, impacts that that investment in humanity would actually uh, have. So I think that's an exciting space to uh, to broaden out that debate in many different Definitely. ways. Definitely. I think that's something that America's, well, you know, it's, it's probably weird to say that America's out in front is in any respect, uh, you know, sort of as a society, uh, given the state they're in. But like UBI, as you mentioned, the Yang campaign uh, mm -hmm. and, the, you know, presidential run um it's obviously went to biden but there's been recent chat that biden's considering yang as uh, his vice presidential candidate on the ticket amongst obviously and yeah. a number of other people so as much as his campaign you know failed in the presidential sense it really put ubi on the map in america in a way that probably wasn't the case here until Absolutely. you know coronavirus sort of sparked off um 
And you talk about that wider issue. I mean, a lot of people really got on board. But I, I remember seeing a quote for um, Dave Chappelle where he was talking about universal basic income would be the biggest redistribution of wealth to black people in history. Um, and again, there will be other minority groups that would have seen right. you know, a similar impact. So although we think about it in a very sort of individual sense about how much a, a UBI income would mean to me in my everyday life, I, I quite like that you were pointing towards there are actual wider societal changes, I think. In America, you were talking about, you know, billions of dollars going to the black community for the first time in their history and what that could mean for them. And it was it was good to see, you know, quite high profile people take the idea on and actually like go and advocate for it. I'd like to see more of that here. Absolutely. I mean, it's really exciting seeing in the US um how many candidates there are in, in you know congressional and, and elections. So Scott Sanson is the, the basic income campaigner. He's working as policy chief for uh, Mike Breuer, who's running against Mitch McConnell um, in, in Kansas. So, you know, trying to take out the Republican leader of the Senate, uh, very much in a basic income platform. We've that seen some scale. Yeah, I'd be amazing. I mean, I'm getting a lot of coverage for it. But if you see across the US, you see a lot on Twitter now, there's a UBI caucus of candidates who are running on the basis of effectively being Yang Democrats and, and you know, taking a lot of what he's talking about. Interestingly, I think I've seen some, was there, a, there was a Glasgow Uni, did the, the Glasgow Uni caucus come out for you? Yeah, so they had the they had the Democrat caucus, yeah. It was a shame, I'd like to have gone along to it, actually. But, um, but I mean, I, I'm part of a, a group of, you know, there's a UK Yang gang who are still interested in what he's doing. I mean, I think there's, already talk about 2024 and so on uh, but i mean it's, it's pushed the, the the kind of overton window massively there i mean you you can see just now in in uh, the u.s congress uh, and senate i think there's four different bills being put forward for types of emergency basic income the the kind of closest to basic income one that's in there is being co-sponsored amongst others by uh, bernie sanders and kamala harris so you know you've got presidential candidates who have now come quite strongly on, on board. Tulsi Gabbard's another one. You know, you're, you're seeing this surge of interest. And yes, sometimes it's not in the perfect, pure way that we'd all love to see. But I think that the support is is critical. Um, I agree with you. I mean, I, I would like to see some more of it here. I would hope. So, I mean, I think you can see some big steps recently. So the SNP Social Justice Commission um, you know, they're now looking for consultation. They have put basic income as one of the central policies. <laughs> That's quite a big shift from, I would yeah. say, months ago when they weren't looking at it uh, at all. I would expect and hope that we'll go into the Scottish parliamentary elections next year with at least the SNP and Greens having manifesto pledges around basic income uh, and potentially some of the other parties, even if it's around experimentation, still having it there as a, as a yeah, policy. Progressing. Progressing, yeah, we're seeing a big surge of interest for it. It's what we do with the next and how we because, of course, the fundamental issue you know, it was summed up when when Nicola Sturgeon said, If I had the powers, I would deliver basic income now. I mean, the interest and support and excitement in the global basic income community was huge. You know, Scotland is seen as this incredible, dynamic, forward thinking place. The critical bit, of course, as we all knew, was that she said, if I had the powers, and she doesn't. And, you know, yeah. that's our big sticking point. <laughs> we can have, so I, I don't know if you saw, but I, I had an article on the, the head of last Sunday, uh, Mark Diffley, um, 
the, the polling consultant, they'd had some polling in Scotland showing high levels of support for face kind of yeah. across all gender, socioeconomic groups. You know, the, the public support's growing, the political support's growing. We're still kind of stuck in what we do with that. I think that's going to be quite the challenge next is, well, how do we build that really? And I think I would love to see that not only being about basic income, and I say that as someone who spends far too much of my life focused on this issue, but connecting into the four-day week, the well-being economy, into, you know, campaigns around, you know, the WASPI campaign into to others. I think there's such a space there to create a really powerful progressive, and I mean this in the broadest, most inclusive sense, kind of progressive political platform that can say, look, some of the ways you deliver this, that's where there's differences between political parties, fine. But actually, at its heart, we want to create a fairer, more secure Scotland. It's going to be far better placed for future. This crisis is, uh, you know, not to diminish its horrific impact and impacts that are worse than they should have been, uh, certainly in the UK. Yeah. I think this crisis is a, is a warning shot. You know, it, it's been a horrific one, but it could be even worse. You know, from a disease perspective, there are nastier things that could come out. This could have hit different parts of the population. And I think if we don't respond and be better prepared for future crises, which there will be, then, you know, we're going to regret that, uh, sadly, in, in, in a big way. Definitely. What do, you, what do you think about how we come out the other side of this? Because... It's already looking like the roadmap for the UK is going to be austerity on steroids. That we'll just it, they're going to revert back right now. That we've, we've gave you this eight to twelve week sort of funded holiday or whatever way they're going to paint it for us, which is definitely not the case. In my opinion, just how I feel yeah. they're going to sort of um, the narrative's going to be, and that we're going to need to pay for it. Um, I heard somebody on uh, Andrew Yang's podcast saying that. In America, uh, they could pay for it by taxing, like having a wealth tax that hits the top 5% of the top 1%. So that's like 5% of the top 1%. And if they, if they did a 4% wealth tax, it would clear it. It would be like, that's it. Yeah. So that, that is like an example of something that it, it, it was saying things like it wouldn't even, people that, the people that would pay this tax it wouldn't even sort of enter the stratosphere of a concern because it's so little of their actual wealth that they probably wouldn't even feel that they would make it back within the next sort of couple of months. Um, do you think that that's an actual viable solution? Or, or do you think that we need something like post-World War II where we actually just invest and we keep printing more money and we invest that money in infrastructure and we go back and we make like because I think that the one that the wealth tax for me just feels like I don't know it just feels kind of I don't know I, I would rather that we went into we, we actually built a, tried to build a better society like we did after the world wars rather than just sort of like taxing the rich and, and having like that I, I really agree with that. I think, you know, it's why I feel you sometimes see the criticism. So like Ian McWhorter had an article in the Herald about how basic income is going to make us all surfs, uh, which was a little bit ludicrous and slightly insulting to a lot of really good people who've done a lot of very good progressive work in this. But uh, anyway, um, but it was partly again because what he did was, well, you know, it cost far too much and, it would be, you know, you wouldn't get it through because income tax would need to go to, you know, whatever level. That's because we're viewing everything through an outdated lens. So we're saying we need 
a new economy and a new society for the new world we're moving into with huge opportunities and huge challenges. We can't then just do that in the same way that we've done previously. So I think I've said to you guys before, but quite often when I do talks on this, someone will call me a communist and someone will call me, you know, a, a right-wing libertarian. And they'll say to you, so the answer, the answer is communism or the answer is, you know, free market capitalism. And I'm like, yeah. do you know what? Communitarian. Yeah, why, 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 why are we not finding new ideas that, that grow and evolve items? So you talk about the post-war period. You know, it's an incredible period where it shows and frankly, COVID has shown you can do things. You know, this whole idea that government has no power and that you know it's it's just a bane in our lives. When it needs to and it wants to, it can find money. It can radically change society. Everything that we were told, <coughs> critical to universal credit, right? You know, punishments and sanctions and all the rest vanished overnight as soon as it needed to, with no difference. Uh, yep. Yeah. yeah. You know, we need to challenge that better, but. Part of the problem is that the, the post-war periods, the challenges we face there, you know, beverages, giants, they haven't gone away. They've just evolved and we haven't evolved with them. So, you know, income tax will be a part of, of a new society because it's an important way to share the burden across society. I think there are ways to look at, you know, wealth and, and particularly wealth that is kept out of the system. You know, that's that's something we need to look at. But, yeah. Just funding this, if we just came out of this, tax the top 1% of money, which, as you say, they make back again double quick. But they'll resist anyway, as a matter of principle. Mm -hmm. We've not changed the system. We've not changed the underlying imbalances. We've actually yeah. just temporarily put sticking plaster on. To me, this is our, not only opportunity, but it's our responsibility to fundamentally rethink society so projects i'm getting involved with uh, there's a group lateral north um kind of architects and designers in, in glasgow are looking to just launch something called the post-pandemic city so what does glasgow look like after covid um so they've been looking at things around vacant and derelict land really interesting group I recommend getting in touch with them. um you know so all this land is just sitting there contributing nothing to the people of glasgow because it's being held as a future sales opportunity um so I've, I've got a piece coming out for them tomorrow uh, when we're speaking um around um so kate roberts donut economy um and you know how we could look at that for glasgow amsterdam's looking at this idea of so you know you have limits you don't go above in terms of environmental sustainability and floors that you don't let anyone go below how do you create that sweet bit in the middle i think this is where we start to say you know, build back better, which is being used by so many groups, has to be about building back different. You know, we cannot go back to where we were. The normality we were in has helped to get us to where we are now, both in terms of the spread of, of the disease and its, its kind of interaction. Climate change has had an impact on, you know, these kind of zoonotic diseases moving from animals to humans because of proximity. Um, but also the insecurity, as we've talked about, the inequalities have made this hit certain communities far worse than they've, they've hit. Um, and I think, you know, so, so to, to agree with you, Paul, I think we need to look at wealth tax, we need to look at data, we need to look at land value, taxation, environmental, all these different strands. But we can't just use this as a, well, that's great. They've done their bit by giving us a few billion. Um, you know, we've temporarily changed it. We have to change how the entire system works and that sounds really grandiose and kind of utopian but actually I think we have a moment now where we're kind of being confronted with the fact 
if we don't, it's going to be a complete disaster. This isn't hypothetical anymore. This is riots. Yep. This is people dying. This is, you know, unnecessary deaths that could have been prevented, but have been, you know, and we've seen different ways of doing it around the world. Um, you know, I'm sure Pierre Jacinda Ardern's getting a bit fed up of being held up as the kind of pinnacle of, of humanity at this point. But yeah. he has, you know, managed to go through this from starting point of, we will not sacrifice anyone to a herd immunity strategy, you know, and, and I think there are real differences there. And so for me, it has to be about more than just one-off policies. It has to be about fundamentally rethinking what do we want life to look like and how do we make that happen? Cool. So in terms of the, you know, the wider context of UBI, like a number of countries put in basically emergency measures that were, a form of UBI, and I think Canada um, was one of them. Some of the Scandinavian countries done the same. Is there any evidence coming back for them that they've been effective? Is it too early to tell? Do we know much about this, the success of them yet? I think it's uh, it's probably a bit early to tell some of it. I think there's been some good stuff uh, in Canada. Canada's a funny one anyway, because effectively they have lots of different basic incomes. They just right. never join them all together. So, you know, there's like a basic income for kids. There's a basic income that everyone gets now through climate taxes getting paid back. You know, there's, there's elements there. I think it's been very interesting a few things. One is the number of countries who are using cash payments um, to people. So, you know, I think last I saw there's a, a great uh, piece of work by a guy called Hugo Gentile who's updating it weekly. But I think certainly over 80 countries have gone to direct cash payments of some sort to their, their citizens. 80? I'm sure last time I saw well, it was over, and, you know, many other countries had, had introduced other policies. Yeah. They, they, they could be things like in the US where it's a one-off payment. And, you know, I think people like Francis Coppola, the, the economist had pointed out that that kind of helicopter money is better when you're leaving the crisis and you need people spending rather than actually when everyone's sitting at home. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the regularity of payments, we're maybe not seeing quite so much. The, the one that probably picked up the most interest and sadly was kind of inaccurately reported was the Spanish example. So there was a lot of talk about Spain was going to introduce the first ever national basic income. Uh, it's actually quite a targeted support for families and you have to meet a lot of criteria. So it's not a basic income. I think what's interesting and positive about it, though, is that they were very clear that this is not just a policy for the crisis. They intend this to be permanent because actually they've seen there are insecurities there and they need to address them. So I think that's where we want to see a bit more positivity around let's not, yes, we have to help people survive now, but that's not enough. We have to be looking to how this leads into to other opportunities um, as, as well. I mean, internationally, you know, UN, as as a master course now is moving more towards seeing direct cash payments as the way you make the best impact to people. And that can be in a, a variety of different ways. But I think the argument around the effectiveness of basic income has is, is moved on massively across the world. And even, you know, the finished results recently from the experiment there, it's an incredibly limited experiment. I don't mean that in a bad way, but, you know, it was only 2,000 unemployed people. So it was a very, you didn't see community interactions, you didn't see non-unemployed people and so on. The results are still pretty positive. People, unsurprisingly, feel better about themselves. They have better physical mental health. They have opportunities to be creative. There actually was a small increase in the, the number of people working who were receiving the basic income. So, uh, you know, I think we're starting to see that actually a lot of the 
the data and the evidence is there, certainly to show up some of the, you know, the, the people are lazy or they'll spend it on, you know, booze arguments that are just so tired and lazy themselves, ironically. Uh, yeah. For me, where the, the important critique is, what, what do we sacrifice to pay for this? Or how do we invest in this? What do we combine it with? What are the levels? These are all really interesting critiques. And I want to see more challenge around how we do that best. Um, but yeah, like... To start with nuclear bombs and trains not going to yeah. Birmingham. Well, exactly. I mean, it's, it says it all, doesn't it? But I mean, we're also, you're saying about things getting worse. I mean, we're, we're hurtling towards a no-deal Brexit. So yeah, yeah in some ways... Hopefully this will be in a bit of practice for some of the issues that are going to come out of that. Uh, this is something that's kind of flying under the radar a wee bit at the minute, isn't it? Is that the actual UK negotiating team has basically went to the EU and like fucking took a dump on the desk? Yeah, and basically said that, you know, this cannot be paused regardless of the fact. I think both negotiating teams all had COVID at one point and they were like, <laughs> well, we'll just, we'll just pretend we're continuing. So, I mean, it's the Should point have. is, yeah, we don't have any... Nobody's paying attention to the fact that we are. I think that's now inevitable and it's going to yeah, as badly. And as we've seen already, the UK has chosen to follow an individual path during this. So refusing to join in the EU PPE schemes and so on. I mean, when you start to see some of the stuff around the PPE from Turkey, where it was some guy who's got a T-shirt factory that they bought it from or something. Um, this is because suddenly they cut themselves off and actually it turns out you know america is not going to back you up at that point you know you're, you're going to be a small <laughs> player so i think there's there's some worrying issues there and to me this is partly you know i talk a lot about the positives i think basic income bring i don't see it as a, a panacea or magic bullet but, you know and this relates to what we've talked about in the uk and in, in the us fundamentally it's about trust it's about saying to people we trust you we will give you this basic amount of money because we trust you to use that in a way that's beneficial for you people show that can you imagine societies where actually trust was at the bottom of it instead of the, the mistrust that underpins what we have here and what we've seen across the water i would be that would be revolutionary um and i, I think we're seeing that if we don't the the mistrust is just going to get ever bigger completely agree man completely agree it seems like a it seems like a bit an alien concept to base our entire sort of societal interaction on trust when we live in a country that has, you know, poverty porn and stuff like that. But I certainly hope it's something that we can get towards as, as this moves forward. Um, but I'm not, I mean, really, I think I had covered most of what I was looking to cover, if you're good here. Absolutely, man. I would just like to, like, I know that we sort of mentioned that a wee bit earlier on, but just to make it really apparent, just to vocalise my solidarity for the black community in America that um, they're, they're currently going through, they're being painted as like looters and rioters and like they're, they're making yeah. up. This is the only outlet that people have got that are destitute and yeah. like I back them 150%. Like they, it can't go on the way that it's been going on. Um, and I, I just wanted to just say that just right. as, as like just a way of showing solidarity with them. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And I was really struck recently. I, I took part in a, a basic income discussion that was hosted by Tamarack Institute in Canada. And they started the session by having a, basically a, a moment where someone led us in a reflection on the land and the indigenous people. And it was effectively a thank you 
to the indigenous people of, of Canada and of North America for effectively sharing their land with those who had come in from elsewhere. And it really struck me that, you know, it's, it's not something we reflect on in the same way here, but I think seeing that shared, uh, even if the context or the specific day-to-day -day examples are very different, but seeing the shared solidarity that there has to be between different communities to say, actually, this is wrong, and we stand by you in saying this is utterly wrong, I think is, is absolutely critical. We need to do more of that, because I think otherwise, we become complicit by silence, don't we? If we don't seem to be willing to call out, um, you know, this, I saw something on Facebook today that said, you know, there's never a time, but this is particularly not a time to be quietly anti-racist. This is a time to yeah. be fighting out about the fact you're anti-racist and we need to see ever more of that, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen a, a post for somebody saying that, as, as Paul, you know, just to echo what Paul had said, that it's important that people with, you know, a platform raise their voices on this one. Um, I think in a UK context, it's, you know, obviously kind of once removed to us in a lot of respects, but there are obviously issues here. And this post made a point that, you know, we need to understand our own history in a sort of colonial context to understand the impact the UK has historically had on racism all around the world. Um, and I think that's something that, I'd love to explore down the line. I've got a few ideas for upcoming episodes that I'll talk to Paul about in the coming days, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to maybe try and actually like explore some of that down the line. Absolutely. I mean, because I think Glasgow's a great city. You know, I love Glasgow to bits. We still haven't fully embraced our role in slavery exactly. and racism. Both good and bad. You know, there's no surprise that in some ways we were the heart of anti-abolitionist, you know, our abolitionist movements, and also benefited so much but kind of pretended that again we were one arm yeah. move. so yeah it's, it's an area we need to, to confront and challenge because you know going back to what you, you said earlier uh, Matt you know, none of this is us taking any sort of you know superior attitudes to, to what's going on elsewhere and comments on the US are from a place of solidarity love and just your heart breaking for people who are, who are suffering through this yep. and it's recognising that it can take different shapes and forms. I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland for my formative years. It's the worst racism I ever saw in my life. And it was through being in communities where there were not many people who were different when it came to skin colour. So it was it was casual, ignorant, not thought through racism, which doesn't make it any better. But no. it showed you that that is there. And we need to confront and challenge that across yeah. every community. Cool. Well, I mean, that's me. I'm good. Right, it's been great David. talking to you. No, absolutely. It's been really good, uh, as always. Oh. And I think critical, well, you know, from my perspective, you guys are big supporters of everything we're doing. So it's, it's great to have you using your platform to do that. Absolutely. We'll, we'll maybe try and work out one of the uh, footballs that, you know, Soccer MD will get you for a hat trick, all right, man? Really? <laughs> <laughs> right, thanks right. very much, Jamie. Right. Cheers. Sometime, See you there, guys.
Sad upon 